You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 27. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, I just want to reiterate again, word of welcome. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, the teachings of Matthew as an eyewitness record of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is not just somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, an impressive Jewish rabbi, a teacher. He is actually the Son of God. God in the flesh. It's with that in mind that we come to our text this morning in Matthew 27. But before we look at that text, let me ask you this question. It's a question that takes some personal reflection, one that you will do so privately and personally, even now as I speak to you. Have you ever done something that you are so ashamed about that you have never told anybody else. Not your parents, if you did it during your childhood while you were growing up. Not your friends that perhaps you were roommates with, went to college with, or work alongside. Perhaps not even your spouse to whom you perhaps you've been married to for years. Things that you know that you have thought, that you have said, or that you have done, that you're so ashamed by, that you prefer to erase the memory of them of ever having existed. The chances are, when I ask such a question, many of you this morning would say yes to that question. Yes. Many of us have felt at some point or another, dare I say all of us at some level or another have felt the weight of shame and the reality of what that is in our life. Shame by definition is known as a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness, the awareness of a wrong done or foolish behavior. Sadly, sometimes shame is felt not because of anything that we have done ourselves, but tragically in a twisted plot of a broken world, sometimes we feel shame for what others have done to us and against us. That Satan has successfully twisted that in our interpretation of that, that we feel shame for what others have done, that we have not even done ourselves. For example, in studies on suicide, suicide has often been connected to other forms of injury and violence. People who have experienced violence, including child abuse, bullying, or sexual assault and violence, have a higher risk of suicide. They did not do anything, something was done to them, and nevertheless, tragically, and sadly, 
They contemplate the killing of themselves. For others, though, perhaps many of us in this room, shame is a byproduct of what we have actually done. We know it. We might not speak it, but we know it. Many suffer in silence because of their shame. The truth is, sin and shame go hand in hand. We see this in the early pages of Scripture, and if you would, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. I want you to see the first record of shame. It's in the very first episode of human response to God, a response of rebellion, a response of disobedience. Just to remind you, for those of you who know, and to teach you, for those of you not familiar with the scriptures, in Genesis, you have the account of God creating the entire world, everything you see today in existence because of God's creation, including mankind. He creates man and woman and gives them a responsibility to exercise dominion over all the earth. He gives them a unique relationship to each other, man and woman, as we see in Genesis chapter 2. And he gives them instructions of what to do and what not to do. But in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to another party, the serpent, known to us later as Satan, indwelling this serpent, having a conversation with Eve, and beginning to cause doubt on God's word. You can see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say? He proceeds to tempt them. They then give in to that sin. Look now at verses 6 and following of Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She did the very opposite thing God said to do. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. There's your shame, the hiding from God. Among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? We'll stop there. What we see in Genesis is the beginning of an endless cycle of God communicating his word to his people, his people rebelling against him in disobedience and sin, and then resultingly them hiding themselves from God in shame. It is like a broken record over and over and over throughout history and repeating itself endlessly, even illustrated by the lives of all of us in this room here today. Well, this morning, in Matthew 27, we read the account of a man who was overwhelmed by his shame that he had the most tragic of responses. He killed himself. 
He killed himself. The main point of today's text is this. Shame will condemn you. Christ will forgive you. Shame will condemn you. Christ will forgive you. Now to our text. Matthew 27. Let's go back to that. Picking up where we left off. Having understood Jesus is on trial. We come into the next Seen as Matthew's recording in Matthew 27. Now, just as a word of explanation, we have not forgotten about verses 69 through 75 with Peter's denial of Jesus, but we spoke of that earlier when we spoke in Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 35. Just to remind you, for those of you present, and if not, you can go back online and listen to that message about Peter's denial and how Jesus responds to that and how Peter responds himself. So now we continue from this religious trial of Matthew 26, verses 57 to 67, or 68 rather, to now the political Roman trial. But there's really this like excursus, this sort of like middle moment here that Matthew records something that we're going to look at today. Verse 3, Matthew 27. Then when Judas, Judas, excuse me, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See, do it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. And the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, in this text this morning, there is much to see, but I want to make sure that you don't miss what otherwise would perhaps be missed if you just think of the biography of one man. A tragedy, a tragedy which we'll look at in just a minute in Acts chapter one and verses 16 to 19 as it gives more detail of what takes place here in this scene. First of all, I want us to see, number one, shame can be crushing. Shame can be crushing. When you look at verses three through four, you can see what was going on here with Judas. Judas, his betrayer. Now, just to remind you of this, just to kind of go back, if you can kind of see the parallel, or rather the the earlier setup, for those of you who are not with us, go back to Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Matthew 26 says, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him, referring to Jesus, over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, jump down, if you would, in verse 21. 
And as they were eating, he, being Jesus, truly said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. They're very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, is it I, Lord? Verse 23, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in this dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, it is as you have said so, or you have said so, rather. Now, jump ahead to verse 47. Jesus, in the context of the conversation of Gethsemane, verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, having left and now coming now to have him be arrested, one of the 12 with him, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. They came up to Jesus at once, excuse me, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up, laid hands on Jesus, and seized him. So now you understand the context. Judas is now reflecting in these early hours since this has just taken place, and he realizes what he has done. And it's overwhelming. Now, some commentators have speculated as to what was Judas's motivation in betraying Jesus. We've spoken of those different options in the past. Clearly, there seems to be some type of difference in what was an expectation that would come. He knows he's betraying him, but the result of which he now sees in full living color. An innocent man who is guilty of no crime will be killed. And it's not as if he can't act like he didn't know that that was a plot the entire time. Throughout Jesus' ministry, this has repeatedly, as Matthew and Mark and Luke and John have recorded, continually been the stated purpose of the religious leadership at that time. They wanted, they continually plotted, how do we arrest Jesus to put him to death? And they finally have found their man in Judas. But now Judas feels an overwhelming amount of shame. It says there that he saw that Jesus was condemned, 27 verse 3, and he changed his mind. What's significant here is to recognize Judas feels what we often feel ourselves. And that is the cold, hard reality that when sin is done, the weight of it, the consequences from it, and the burden upon our consciences is overwhelming. Perhaps you've heard the expression, sin is fun until it's done. You wake up the next morning that moment of enjoyment has passed. Whatever you had to gain seemingly has of no value. How many people have been unfaithful to their spouses for a momentary sense of pleasure only to realize when that pleasure was done 
It was not worth the cost of what they were going to have to pay. Judas was blinded by a desire. While the motives maybe were mixed, one evident reality was what he was willing to be paid. 30 pieces of silver. What he thought would satisfy, what he thought would produce a result did not happen. And as a result of this, he's overwhelmed. For many people, shame and guilt go often hand in hand. To just differentiate between these two terms so that you understand them yourself, guilt is a pronouncement upon what you have done. Shame is the pronouncement against who you are and how you feel. Guilt relates to your practice. Shame relates to your person. Interestingly, by God's intended design, the goal is not to remove shame. That's not the goal. The goal is to deal with shame and what it's pointing to. Something is wrong. I remember when I lived in South Carolina, I was given the opportunity to take some flying lessons. You know, not the big planes, little Cessna 152. And I remember being in the plane with this instructor, a bit of a good old boy, if you will. And he wanted to make sure I was really interested in being a pilot. So he thought he'd do kind of his form of like instructor hazing. And so he put the plane into a stall. What that basically means in a small plane like that is your, the rate at which the air is going over the top of the wings versus underneath the wings, at some point the plane begins to fall. It's stalling in the air. Take my word for it, it's terrifying. But what happens, and he wanted me to hear, is he wanted me to hear the alarm that comes on in the plane. It's this loud buzzing sound. It's communicating in sound what you're feeling in your stomach. We're in trouble. The plane begins to fall, and the way to recover from that, surprisingly, is what you would think you don't want to do. It's to push the nose of the plane forward to get the wind to go over the top and lift it back up, but you feel like, now we're gonna nosedive into the ground. All of this is happening, of course, in a matter of seconds. Here's the problem with how the world handles shame. The world wants to teach you to turn shame off by turning all those warning bells in your life off, to shut down your conscience, that what you feel bad for, don't feel bad for. Don't let somebody else judge you. To see this firsthand, Keeping your finger in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, go a few books to the right in the Gospel of Romans. Excuse me, the, the book of Romans. It's good news. I take it at that. It's not known as the Gospel of Romans until this morning. Romans, chapter 1. I want you to see this for yourself. We'll just hit the highlights here to kind of begin. Paul writes to this church in the city of Rome, a major metropolitan city like you can imagine in the, here in Miami. And Paul is giving a, a commentary in society. 
Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There it is. They suppress the truth. They're turning off the warning bells. They're turning off what's known about God. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. It goes on to talk about how basically God's revelation that there is a God is undeniable. But they turn it off. What's the consequence of this? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. It's talking about opposite sex, heterosexual desires to now homosexual desires, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Friends, this is Paul saying in Romans chapter one, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shame is something that the world wants to turn off in your conscience. It wants you to not feel guilty. Okay, guess what? If you don't feel guilty, then you won't feel your need for a savior. What happens in Matthew 27 is Judas feels overwhelmingly guilty. And it is crushing him. So what does he do? Verse four and five, he takes the money back to where he got it. He goes to the very place that created the problem to begin with. And he basically says, hey, take the money back. This is wrong. You see what he says there in Matthew 27. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. What's interesting to notice is that Judas acknowledges his action as sin. And he makes commentary on the innocence of Jesus. The guilty affirming the innocent. The problem is he takes his problem to other guilty parties. This is is why the expression is so true. Sin makes you stupid. You continue to do stupid things because of your sin. He is expecting to take his problem to the people who are parties to his problem. 
and expecting them to remedy it. This will never create a a right solution to his problem. And that's exactly what you see happening here in the text. How do they respond? What, What do they say? They say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. He throws down the pieces of silver into the temple, and he departed. And he went and hanged himself. This is shame to the ultimate degree. He can't imagine living, living any longer, dealing with the weight of his conviction. Acts chapter 1, verses 16 and 19. Luke gives more detail to explain to us what happened. Basically, he goes to this place, this field, a field where the potters would get clay out of, and he ties a noose around a tree, and he hangs himself. It's not clear how he died. Was it by hanging or by crashing? But what we do know from Acts chapter 1 is when he falls, after hanging himself, whether or not he's still alive or has already died, his body falls on these jagged rocks and his bowels burst open. That's why it's then later nicknamed the field of blood. And the money that he gave back to the priests, they take and they buy the field with and say, well, now that's a field that foreigners can be buried in. We can't touch it. Now, here's what's so radical. I want you to see what they'd say in Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 6. The chief priest, taking the piece of silver, said it is not lawful to put them, referring to the silver, into the treasury since it is blood money. Now, here's what's interesting I want you to observe. Both parties recognize guilt. By the fact that they refer to this money themselves as blood money, they're acknowledging that this money secured the arrest and what was about to be the the crucifixion of Jesus. His blood will be shed for what this money accomplished. But what's different between them and Judas is that Judas feels bad for it. They do not. There's an example where shame has just been turned off. In fact, they want to distance themselves from it. They don't want to be associated with it. They acknowledge what it accomplished. They refer to it accordingly as blood money. That itself would have been scandalous. And they seemingly want to maintain an air of religious respectability. Oh, we don't want the temple to be associated with this blood money. They're more worried about the money than their very lives, which are themselves corrupted by the sin that they've committed, that money is just a vehicle for their sin. The rejection of the Son of God. This is tragic to see. This takes us secondly to what we need to not miss in this text. Confession is not the same thing as repentance. Secondly, confession is not the same thing as repentance. There's this term that's being used here in verse 3 by Judas, or about Judas, rather, that Matthew writes. 
It says, when, G- when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. This term comes from the same term that we get the word today, repentance, but it's a degree of difference. It's basically like saying the same thing about the difference between confession and repentance. That's why I have here the the title of this point, Confession is Not the Same Thing as Repentance. Judas is acknowledging what he has done is wrong, but he's not willing to go to the person that he needs to go to to make it right. This is the difference in the biography of Judas versus Peter. Consider the difference there. Peter is really a representative of the remaining disciples who themselves have abandoned Christ. Now, they're not labeled in any way as betraying Christ, but as it says in verse 56, that all, are, all the disciples left Jesus and fled. We see the specific denial of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 to 75, where three different times he keeps being asked are you with Jesus? And keeps denying him and denying him and denying him. And it says in verse 75, he went out and wept bitterly. So what's so interesting is the testimony of Peter in verse 75, weeping bitterly of what he has done versus the testimony of Judas in Matthew 27. You say, what's the difference? Because Jesus would go back to, I mean, excuse me, Peter would go back to Jesus to be restored in his relationship. Later on, after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus appearing to his disciples would have a conversation with Peter by the shore. And he would say, do you love me, Peter? And three different times he would ask this question. This grace that Jesus shows Peter in reconciling back to himself. Judas... No, he's willing to acknowledge he's done something wrong, but he's not willing to make it right. Friends, in your own life today, let me just caution you to recognize the difference between your confession and your repentance. I can imagine I could have a conversation with you, even if I met you for the first time, We could have a brief interaction about the word of God and you would probably acknowledge in a series of questions that I could ask you that what you have done is contrary to what God's word says all of us should do. You have therefore done what the Bible refers to as sin. You have rebelled against God. The problem is not your acknowledgement of that. The problem is what you do next. Confession, by definition, means to say the same thing about your action that God says. God says this, I agree with that. I should not have, but I did, and that's wrong. That's different than repentance. Repentance involves confession, but it also includes turning from and going the opposite direction to turn from that and to find, indeed, hope in Christ. Friends, do you understand? The preaching of the gospel, the good news, 
is to point you in a direction where there is hope from your guilt and shame. For those of you who are here who are not in Christ, who have never surrendered your life to Christ, you've got to ask yourself an honest question. What do I do about my guilt and my shame? And I don't have to convince you of that. Your own conscience tells you that. And you know it's wrong to turn it off, and you see others around you trying to turn it off, but that's just trying to like cover your eyes and ignore the reality that you're living in and that the rest of the world around you is living in. That is no suitable solution to deal with your sin. There can only be one response, turning to Christ. That's what Peter would do. That's what Judas would not do. Shame can be a precursor to gospel receptivity. Listen to what John Calvin once wrote, quote, only those who have learned well to be earnestly dissatisfied with themselves and to be confounded with shame at their wretchedness truly understand the Christian gospel. Saying it differently, it's only until you can understand how bad it is with you that you can realize how good it can be with Christ and find the good news in him, which takes us to the third lesson here. Shame doesn't have to be the final chapter of your life. Shame doesn't have to be the final chapter of your life. Think about what happened here with Judas. He hangs himself, and then it's over. Now, the scriptures go on to speak about this prophecy of Jeremiah, which is interesting because there is this reference to Jeremiah, but it's also known in Zechariah. The prophecy that Matthew is quoting here, primarily being from Zechariah, but mentioning Jeremiah as well, because both the reference, this would have been a practice that Mark did as well. Both prophets are in mind, but only mentioning the major prophet by name. And what we can see here in the text is that this was the final story for Judas. Shame, suicide, in the end. And history has nothing more to speak of his life except as being forever known as the betrayer. But now that we understand the difference about confession versus repentance, may I remind you of even the song that we sing at times here at Grace Church titled, A Man of Sorrows. Listen to these verses of a song as I read them to you that you might think of them. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we, spotless lamb of God, was he. Full redemption can it be. Hallelujah, what a savior. Friends, what you have to understand is that Jesus makes possible the truth that shame does not have to be the final chapter, final identity marker of your life or my life. Because Jesus' work on the cross is as a substitute. I'm reminded of what Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. Listen to this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, so cling, which clings so easily 
so closely rather, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, that that statement about Jesus' shame even speaks to the detail of what he went through publicly, embarrassingly, shamefully, even taking upon himself shame, even though he did nothing wrong. The crucifixion in the first century, unbelievably shameful way to die, stripped of all of your outer garments, hung just like carnage, on a cross, on pieces of wood. And he particularly, to be even more ashamed, put upon him, had a sign put over his head on the piece of wood behind him that read, King of the Jews, as they mocked him, causing him shame. And yet, this man was the God-man who could have saved himself from that shame, but chose not to so that he could save you from your shame, from your guilt. He stood condemned so that you and I could be declared righteous and forgiven, that shame would not be the end of our story. As Jeremy Pierre writes, the end of Christian identity is righteousness, not shame. So two questions for you this morning. Do you feel shame? And secondly, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Jesus is saying, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. A lot of you, even Christians sitting here this morning, are burdened with your shame. Jesus is saying, come. Find in him hope. Find in him forgiveness. Find in him one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. The author and perfecter of our faith would be our great savior. Friend, I don't want to tell you what the world is telling you, to turn off the alarm bells. No, those are gifts from God to teach you to bring that to the cross and find forgiveness. And I hope you'll do that this morning. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.